good evening, good afternoon, no matter where it is, may it be great. So let me tell you about our guest today. This is going to be a great eye-opening set of information for you. As a self-described recovering corporate CEO, Michael Janae's background has covered every possible scenario in leadership, and I mean every possible one. From heading up a startup divisions to C-suite positions with large and small organizations, a CEO with nonprofit and for-profit organizational experience, working in public, private, and government sectors, from his military service, by the way, thank you for your service, to multi-million dollar corporations, and to being an entrepreneur. Michael has served in every leadership management position imaginable. As a TEDx speaker and now TEDx curator with a wealth of experience behind him and a passion for helping people achieve their highest potential, he has taken his life experience and put it into practice in helping people to achieve whatever goals they have in life. Now, Michael is the author of the international award-winning book, Ask, the questions to empower your life. He has written and contributed to many other books and is now the publisher of the newly launched Journey Institute Press. Ladies and gentlemen, let's have a fantastic minute. Let's go, let's go. This is a Touchstone Publishers presentation, your trusted source of leadership knowledge. Well, good morning, Michael, and welcome on board. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about a few things here. But the first thing, first major question I want to ask you, what is it about you or your TEDx talk, we're going to review a little bit today, or your current organization that is unique, that's different, that maybe people don't know that should know about it? That's a great question. Um, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is the, the publishing company, the, the arm that we started, and actually we started it right before COVID, which was perfect timing. Um, is is unique in the sense that it's a, a nonprofit model, and most nonprofit publishing models are based with universities, right? They're funded by universities, and ours is not. We're we're just a nonprofit model that's really geared towards helping authors succeed, and that's something that really hasn't been in the space for a long, long time. And that is a huge, huge difference. There, when you look at that, when you add that into the whole process, I want to ask you because you made it something interesting, COVID. So that was a perfect time to start. Were you being sarcastic or was that really a good time to start? <laughs> no, totally being sarcastic. You know, we, <laughs> I, 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 had, uh, I was the CEO of a uh, media production company and I left at the end of 2019 with the idea of spilling my time between TEDx curation and doing this uh, publishing arm and then COVID hit. And so we had all these plans for launching the company and doing a lot of things, one of which was doing uh, retreats for authors to really just help. And, and again, we're really geared towards first-time authors Right, helping them get launched and get going. And so we had, let's do these retreats and really launch you into your book. And then COVID, we can't do retreats anymore. So what we did was we pivoted. Like most people had to pivot, we did too. And we created a, a month long program that we could do virtually to help people just get started and get that framework and structure going. So yes, COVID was definitely not a good thing, but in the long run, actually now what we have, I think is much better than the retreats we would have done had it not come around. I found that amazing that in, this COVID period that we're coming out of that a lot of us have found ways to be better. Right. I personally, for me personally, it was a health issue. COVID was perfect timing for me personally. So wow. I, when people say that, I say, well, let's, let's hear your story, why you think it is, but I understand <laughs> it was tough. 
But yeah, I mean, for me, that was near perfect timing. Uh, but that's the way that goes. Let's talk a little bit about your TEDx, the journey toward the TEDx. Now, I've heard some great stories about how you, people thought about it. So tell me, how did you get motivated to do that TEDx? Well, it's it's a little bit of a long story, and I don't know if your mm -hmm. listeners have heard the the history of TED because it actually fits into my journey. Okay. So if you don't mind, let me that. give you that real quick. Yeah, so absolutely. TED started in the late, well, mid 1980s, um, and it was you know in California, and it was this sort of culmination of uh, technology, entertainment, and design, and they brought together people um, to talk about these kind of things. Uh, in fact, the first music compact disc was debuted at the first TED official event. The problem was that it was invitation only, and um, you know it was a very, very limited group. And so over the years, it morphed a little bit. And then in 2000, uh, a media entrepreneur named Chris Anderson talked with the, the man who started TED and said, look, I want to do this. I want to take this in a nonprofit direction, and I want to make these talks available to the masses. And so he acquired TED. And then in 2009, TEDx was born. And TEDx is just the same thing as TED, but independently curated all around the globe. And so in 2009, what's interesting about that is my wife did this journey, and you and I have talked briefly about this. In fact, I have to connect the two of you because you're going to love this story. But she went around the country to all 50 states in one year looking for people solving problems. Because of that journey, she was asked to speak on a TEDx stage in Denver in 2010. So this is right at the beginning of TEDx launching. They're just getting their feet wet. Somebody comes into Denver, pulls a license and says, I want to do a TED talk or a TED event. And they asked my wife to do her talk. She was one of two women on the stage, which didn't sit well with her. Fast forward about you know, 10 months or so, she's asked to be part of a new initiative in Denver, um, launching a new TEDx um, event. Uh, and she's asked to be part of the speaker selection committee. She says, absolutely, I'm happy to do it. And once again, they get through the whole process and they put all men on the stage. So my wife's like, no, this, this isn't right. So she called Ted X uh, in New York. She, she called the team and said, look, I'd like to have a license to do my own Ted event and I wanna do it for all women. And they said, no, can't do that. It's gotta be open to the masters. You have to allow people. And she's like, well, you have more men than women on the stage. And said, we understand, but you have to keep it open, fine. Then she says to me, Michael, you should do a talk because you have this amazing idea that you wanna share with the world. You should do a talk. And I said, well, no one's gonna let me do a talk. She's like, look, we have a speaker selection committee. Submit your idea, see what happens. So I submit my idea, I get selected. And at the same time, the part that you don't know is I was also executive producing this event for the first time. We'd never done a TED event. I didn't even know what TEDx was at this point because again, it was brand new. So I'm executive producing the event. I've just taken on a new job and we've just moved houses. So the three <laughs> most stressful things you can do in your life, plus producing the event, right? I'm doing this all at once. Here's the kicker about three and a half weeks before our event, Ted New York calls my wife. They say, hey, listen, Daphna, the reason we told you you couldn't do a women event is we're launching a brand new TED initiative called TED Women. It's gonna be a global event. We're inviting a hundred people around the world to curate a TEDx license with it. Would you like to do it? She said, absolutely. They said, great, it's three months after your current event. Ooh. So now, now I have to not only produce the event that I'm doing and also speaking at, I have to start getting ready for a second event in three months. All of this while I'm trying to come up with, you know, how I'm going to do my TED Talk. It was a crazy, crazy time, which Ooh, if you watch my talk, I mean, it's back in 2011. It's four by three because we hadn't gone widescreen yet. Uh, it's, you know, I'm talking a mile a minute because I'm worried about getting backstage and getting back to the producing. It was a crazy, crazy time. Yeah, you know, that really is. Which one do you prefer better, though, uh, or the most? 
speaking or curating? It's a good question. Um, curating is hugely rewarding because mm -hmm. you are exposing, you know, 12 to 15 or sometimes 18 amazing people who are giving ideas worth spreading. And so you are involved in that process from the time they get accepted all the way through the talks and, and afterwards. And we have a community of 300 and something people now that have been on our stages. And so that's incredibly rewarding. Speaking on the TEDx stage was also incredibly rewarding because I had this idea I wanted to share. And, you know, what better platform than speaking on TEDx stage? So I'm not sure that I, I can say either or. Obviously, I don't speak anymore on the TEDx stage because I'm so busy curating and now being a publisher. Um, but, I, but I love both. I think curating, though, is much more fulfilling because I get to help more people. Okay, because I was going to go back and hold your feet to the fire there. So I'm going to just process <laughs> curating. That's good. You know, um, tell us about your, your your topic. How did you choose that topic? I mean, or the title. Well, I'll tell you, um, this was a long time coming. So I'm a prolific reader. I've been reading books forever. I mean, there's a few of them behind me on the wall, but I've got my, my house is full of books. And I, you know, my passion, I read a lot of different kinds of genres, but my passion is uh, personal development, self-help, whatever you want to term it. And so my whole life, I've um, used those books from, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill way back in the day, uh, you know, doing the Tony Robbins and his personal power programs and Jim Collins and Tim Ferriss, you name it, like all of mm -hmm. those books on leadership and management and personal development, the secret, all of it. And every book I read was fascinating and had something to teach me and I learned something whether it was something new or just you know reinforcing something I already knew it was it was amazing but I had this nagging sort of thing in my the back of my head that kept asking this question which was my favorite question by the way which is one word why it's my favorite question yes um, but why is it that all these books have whatever it is you know they're teaching you goal setting they're teaching you leadership skills they're teaching you whatever they're teaching you how come it only works for some people? Because if you take two people with the same background, same education, same everything, same socioeconomic status, and you give them knowledge in a book, in a, in a course, in a whatever, one person will become successful and use it and take advantage of it, and another person struggles. Why is that? They're the same basic people. They have the same information. So I, I had this idea that we were missing something. And so I decided I was going to figure it out. I was going to find a way to really you know, distill these books and get the nucleus out of them so that I could teach people in an easily understandable manner how they too could take the knowledge and do whatever it is they wanted to do. And that was key, by the way, because I didn't want to use um, just success in business or just success in monetary value or just success in whatever way, because we all define success differently and at different times in our lives, right? We have things going on where one success this week might be I need to get a new transmission in my car. And another success means I want to make a million dollars a year, like, you know, and everywhere in between. So I thought it should be agnostic of the goal, meaning the goal can be small, it can be large, it can be whatever. It needs to be simple, it needs to be rememberable, and it needs to be something everyone can do. So fine. I went back to my books and I started perusing them and writing notes in the margins and I was creating what I call the DNA of success. And if you can imagine circles and lines with circles, pointings and arrows and everything, and I couldn't get a big enough piece of paper to hold it all because the more I went down this rabbit hole, the more complicated this idea of a DNA of success became. So I thought, okay, this is not going to work because A, I'm having trouble understanding it. And B, remember, it has to be something people can understand and it has to relate to everybody. So change tactics. I said, I've got to boil this down to four or five things. And I didn't want to start where most people start. Most people start at the beginning and say, okay, step one, get a dream, 
get very clear about your dream, do all the things about dream building, step two or step 52 by the time you get through all the dream stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right. But step two, goal set. And then you go, right? I didn't want to start there. I wanted to start at the other end because the goal was the, the ultimate thing, whatever it is you want in this moment, in this life, in whatever, in whatever career or personal or relationship, whatever it matters, whatever your goal is right now, how do I help you get there? So I tried to boil down the nucleus of all the things I had learned. And I came up with what determines our success to reach that goal, right? Whatever the goal is, big or small, what determines it? And what determines is, is the actions that we take on a consistent basis. Because our actions will either take us closer to our goal or further away from our goal, right? So at its most basic concept, our actions determine the outcome. Okay, great. My next question, what determines our actions? So I boiled everything down, came, did the whole exercise all over again. I said, okay, at its most basic concept, the things that we focus on consistently determine our action. And so I'll give you an example. If you ever have gotten ready to go on vacation, right? And you're, you're at work and you're doing all your work and you're going on vacation Friday and Monday, you're doing work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. By Thursday afternoon, you start to panic a little bit. And by yeah. Friday, you are really panicked because you haven't done anything at work. You haven't handed off all those reports and things that you needed to do. You haven't packed yet. You haven't got all your stuff yet for the itinerary, but you can get all of that done Friday night in about three hours because you're focused on it, right? Because right. now you're leaving right. Saturday right. morning, right? right. So right. when we focus on something, it determines our actions and our actions, as we said, determine the outcome. Okay, great. I've got number two. What determines our focus? And that one was fairly simple and yet complicated because really what it boils down to is our thoughts, mm -hmm. right? The things we think about tend to mean what we're going to focus on, which then determines the actions. Now, thoughts have a billion different things, and this is where my DNA of success blew up the most, that impact it, right? But again, I wanted to keep it simple. So I said, what determines our thoughts? Like, how do our thoughts originate? Where do they come from? And ultimately, what I kept coming back was this, this notion of our inner dialogue, our inner brain, if you will, right? We're right. constantly having this conversation in our head, and that helps define what we're going to think about, and then what we focus on, and then our actions. But here's the problem, because when you think about that inner dialogue, it's really where you get the, the whole concept of positive thinking, right? It says, when you have some negative experience or something bad is happening to you, just flip the switch and think positive. And that's great. It's, it's a very good mantra to have. But I had, again, I had a challenge, which is that works when life is pretty much going well or on even keel. Because if something bad happens or a negative mm -hmm. happens, you can turn that. You can turn that into a quick positive thinking. But if something major happens, like your transmission falls out, you lose your job or, or God forbid, you lose a loved one from COVID or something like that's a major life experience. How do you just turn it on a dime and have a positive thought, right? There's no way it doesn't work that way. So I had this problem because, again, I knew that all of these ideas only work for some people. So there had to be something missing. And this is where I struggled for a long time, Glenn. I was... It's like, what am I missing? Where is the, you know, why doesn't it work? And I kept coming, why, why, why? And it was my son, actually, my teenage son who, who helped me figure it out, but just by mistake. Mm. He was, you know, typical teenage son. He used to wear those T-shirts that have various sayings and things on them. And he had one that was one of these what I call front and back T-shirts where there's one thing on the front and then the funny parts on the back. And on the front was one of these really complex mathematical, geo, you know, algebraic equations, X equals cosine, <laughs> yeah, tangent, yeah, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And at the top, it says find X, right? And then at the back, when he turned around, same thing, but X was circled with an arrow and it said, here it is. <laughs> right? Pretty funny. 
Keep very obvious and funny. Yeah. But yeah. something in my head, Glenn, something clicked and I went, oh my God, it's been right in front of me the whole time. Just like that X is right in front of you the whole time. I was asking, why doesn't this work? And you know, what's the answer? And why, why? all these questions. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's when I realized that that inner dialogue that we were talking about, that all the books referenced and everybody talks about, you know, having this inner dialogue and mantras and all this stuff. It's not a dialogue. You don't have two people inside your head having this conversation back and forth. You know, something happens and they start talking about what okay. you should do and all. That's not how it works. Yeah. What's yeah. actually happening is a fairly complex set of question and answer. Think about it. From the time you wake up in the morning, right, you come out of your dream state and you're having this wonderful dream and there's this annoying noise in the background and it gets louder and louder. And then finally you realize, oh, my God, it's my alarm clock. <laughs> right. 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 The first thing that goes off in your head as you, as you come into you know, conscious from the unconscious dreaming is, should I turn off my alarm or hit snooze? And in my case, it's, do I hit snooze for the third or fourth time? I'm not ready to get up yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But from that moment, for the rest of the day, all you do is start asking yourself questions. Should I brush my teeth or take a shower or should I do both? What about that report that's due? When am I going to get to work? What to, how am I going to get to work? Who's feeding the kids? What am I doing for lunch? You know. On and on it goes. And when you're driving to work, should I speed up or slow down? Should I turn left here or turn, you know, all these questions are happening in milliseconds all day long, several tens of thousands of times a day. Depending on who you talk to, it's between 50 and 70 thoughts a day. So the questions that inspire those is at least that much. But that's what we're doing is we're asking these questions in our brain and answering them based on our own experience, our knowledge, the people we surround ourselves with, all the things we've read about teach us that we have this input and that's what makes up who we are. And these questions and answers determine our, our thoughts. Right, so think right. about it. If we're asking questions and they determine the things we think about, which then determine what we focus on, which then drives our actions to make us successful or not, then maybe we should do something about those questions. And so what I started coming up with the idea was asking intentional questions, or in my case, motivating questions, things to motivate me to get to my goal. Right. So I took motivating and questions and came up with motivations. That's where that word came from. And so the idea is, what if we could take control of the questions that we're asking ourselves, as opposed to just reactive questions that happen based on whatever's going on in our lives? And that was the nucleus of the talk. And that's okay. how I got there. Now, I, when I heard you talk, it made me start to think about several questions that you normally ask yourself, but oftentimes, how do you break the habit of the answer? Ah, I'm glad you asked. That's an excellent question. So one of the things that I developed was this idea of intentional questions. I mean, I, I use the term improving your IQ, which is, you know, not in, in intelligence yeah, quotient, but intentional yeah. questions. Yes, yes. So as you just mentioned, the habit of just answering the questions or letting the answer come to you because it's it's habit, right? We need to change that. So one of the things that I developed was this idea of doing morning and evening questions. So in the morning, when you first get up and you hit the alarm clock, before you do anything, you've written down on a pad of paper or you've, you know, you've gotten somewhere, you've got a couple, one or two basic questions to ask yourself that you intentionally decided, I want to start my day thinking about these things. I'll get to the reports and the kids and the lunch and all that. I'll get to that. But right now, I want to train my brain to mm. think differently first thing in the morning yeah. so that I can start with a little bit of a different mindset. Same thing in the evening. So in the evening, whatever your ritual is, if you read before you go to bed or you watch TV, whatever it is, do that. And then right before you reach off to turn the light off, right before that moment, look at your pad again and look at your two evening questions. 
and ask those intentional questions. And those are questions that you want to spend your time thinking about as you go to sleep because your, your subconscious brain is going to work on something, right? We all know it's going to work on something. And if you think about all the things you didn't do, because normally when we go to bed, right, it's like, oh, what did I not get done today? And oh, I've got to do that tomorrow. And I forgot about this. And my wife or my husband just told me I have to do X this weekend and I've got to get ready. You know, you're thinking about all these challenges and problems. And that's what you go to bed thinking about. Change that habit by asking different questions that you decide you want to ask. And it'll, it'll change the way you do that. So that's how you begin doing that habit. And the more you do that, the more you get used to the idea that, you know, it's not like you're going to question every single question, which is redundant, but it's not like you're going to change every single question, right? The right. idea of should I turn left or right is a normal idea. You absolutely should right. do that. Right. But there right. are times when you can when you can change the narrative. And let me give you a great example, which actually my wife did. And it's one of those things where when, when your wife's right and you don't want to admit it, it's kind of painful. But one day, <laughs> right? one day I, I came home uh, after a long day of work and I had a really bad drive home. It was just, you know, traffic was traffic. And I, I walked in the door and I was late and I was frustrated and I was angry. And I came in, you know, all about the traffic in my day. And she just let me go. And I was really complaining specifically about being stuck at this one point in traffic and how they wouldn't move through the light. And it was, you know, blah, 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 blah. my wife just listened. As she does, and she let me get through it. And she said, so Michael, what if you reframed that question? What what else could you ask about being stuck at that traffic light? Like, isn't a different way of looking at it? And I was like, oh, I hate when she uses my own stuff, uh, you know, to correct me. Yes, yes, yeah. But and here was her point. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, but here was her point. She's like, what if instead of being frustrated while you're stuck in traffic at the light and you're waiting for the cars to go through, what if you stopped, looked around, at the other cars, at the scenery. We live in a beautiful state in Colorado. There's beautiful mountains around you. Yep. Look mm -hmm. around at what you're missing as you drive through, because normally you're driving through this light and you don't even get to stop. So now that you're stopped, look around and enjoy the moment while you wait. You can't do anything about it anyway. Might as well enjoy it. And boy, let me tell you, that has changed the way I drive. Because oh, yeah. now, yeah. whenever I get stuck somewhere or if ever I'm in a, a rush to get somewhere, I remind myself that, you know what, if I'm stopped, Maybe it's because I'm supposed to look around and see the little dog with his head out the window, which always makes me smile when they're, you know, sitting out the window or the kid who's playing with his sister yeah. in the back seat or the beautiful scenery. And it just reframes that. Part of that is because I built this habit of thinking about whenever something's not feeling right, maybe it's because I'm asking the wrong questions. Wrong question. That's a powerful, powerful way to look at it. And I got to tell you, during your TED talk, I, you know, I didn't have a wife telling me, you know, you're asking the wrong question at these stop signs, but it made me, and this is the power of TED Talk, I think. It made me drift into the thinking, okay, I hit a lot of stoplights. I could do my breathing exercise. I could do some belly breaths. And that's exactly breathe. right. And that's the power of TED Talks. That's the power of your TED Talks. The stories you tell, power of storytelling, causes people to go inside and do different things and have different answers. And then they, oh yeah, Michael's just like me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just think it's really appropriate. I want to ask you about this, though. The missing link. So, what is it? So, again, from my perspective, there's really two components to it. It's the missing link or the, 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 piece, the, the last piece of the puzzle, if you will. And it starts with questions, right? right. Um, because if we can control those questions, ultimately, it goes down the chain. We, we change our thoughts. We, we, we hyper-focus on whatever it is we need, which then drives our actions. And that leads us to success. So if 
for example, if you're in leadership, right, as leaders, you have multiple responsibilities from the company responsibility, your employees and their success, your own mm -hmm. personal success. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. reframing this, the way you approach that and asking different questions will help you along that ride. It's not just a personal thing. It's also a business thing. But here's the, the real key to this. And this is sort of Motivations 2.0. Um, and it's, it's not something you start with, but it's something you get to. So once you get used to this idea of asking intentional questions and you, you find a way to really harness that as a habit, the way you internalize it, the way it becomes something you think about at the stoplight is you add a question after that. And that is, so for instance, if, if I'm saying, what else could I be looking at right now while I'm stopped at the stoplight, for example, let's say that's the yeah. question, the intentional question I'm going to ask, right? So I stopped, right. I'm frustrated, I stop and go, what am I feeling right now, right? So if I feel bad, icky, yucky, down, depressed, sad, pick an adjective. Yeah. If I okay. don't feel good, what question am I asking? Okay, well, I'm asking the wrong questions because I'm frustrated, I'm stuck. So what other question could I be asking? That's one. And the second mm -hmm. side of it is, and how does that make me feel? Because here's what that does. If I think about oh. what are the things I could be doing and I look around and I start not just observing what's happening, but feeling it, I'm bringing the power of emotion into that. And that takes that habit and reinforces it in our, in our you know, neurocircuitly brain 20 times more than if I just ask the question and look. And so by asking, how does that make me feel? One of, the, one of my favorite questions, whether it's a morning question or an evening question, this one applies to both is, who loves me and who do I love? Like if you went to bed asking that question, who loves me and who do I love? And then you just start listing those people, right? And you try to come up with the longest list of people that love you and care about you and that you love and care about. Try sleeping on that kind of information and then on top of it say, and how do they make me feel? So when you think about your wife or your, your son or your daughter or your grandmother or your best friend or whoever it is, and you, wow, they, they really care about me and I really love them. I, I hope they do, they do well. And how does that relationship make me feel? It takes it to the completely next level. And that it's missing really component, that missing link will revitalize the way you live. So, and let's look at that for a second. The, just the idea of saying, how does that make me feel? I mean, you could run that back to that, that question. How does that question make me feel? But how does that answer right. make me feel? Um, and by going with that, you feel better. And yeah. That's the natural thing because you're going to make a different choice. Correct. And again, in any area of your life, right? If you're, if you're trying to think about, for example, people are, you know, they want a better relationship. They're single. They want to find somebody, their life partner, whatever. And so they start asking questions like, what kind of person do I want to be to attract the person that I want? And how would it make me feel to be that be person? That person. Okay. Business it wise, everywhere. The, the question is, how do we turn a profit this quarter? Sure. Well, how does so, it make me feel to turn that profit this quarter? Right. So now you're looking, yeah. it's a little bit of that visioning, right? That we tell leaders right. to do, which is don't just come up with a plan, but envision what it's going to look like. Start acting like you are doing that plan, like you are succeeding. And then when you start doing those kind of visioning statements or, or visioning exercises with your team, but you start to internalize it and say, what's it going to feel like when we hit that sales goal or when we hit that profit you know, margin? What's that going to feel like? It empowers everybody because it's no longer a, well, how are you going to do it, Tim? What are you going to do to make our, make our sales goal? You know, let's come up with a better question. And then how will it make you feel when you achieve that? gives them a little bit more incentive to go do it versus just the slug of having to go do their job. Plus that saying that a lot of people take it apart, fake it till you make it. They're misunderstanding that, I think. It's Absolutely. fake the feeling until the feeling becomes real. 
That's exactly right. And I've, I've always struggled when I see somebody's blog or something, it's like, oh, fake it till you make it is the bad advice. It's excellent advice if you take it the right way. It's how, yeah. you know, it's, it's acting and being and feeling successful before you're successful. It's not spending a million dollars when you don't have it. That's not the right way to well, do that, it. And that's not what it's ever meant to do. So no. the thing is that if you had that type of question, I think, and you ask yourself, you know, the, the final piece, I mean, I love that now. How does that make me feel? Yep. I'm going to feel that way just by asking that question. Exactly. And and the more you can turn up the emotion, you know, the 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 way that you feel about things, the better you will do everything that you're trying to do. The better your thoughts will be, the better your actions will be, the better your life will feel cuz remember, it's not about the destination, right? We all know, we've heard it enough now that it's not just about achieving whatever the goal is. It's about getting there, the journey to that that goal. And so if you want to speak on the TEDx stage, it's not just about getting on the stage. It's the journey to the stage and the, the you know, the whole the whole time of it is what has to feel good. And if if you did the whole work up until your goal and it was lousy and made you miserable and then you achieved your goal. Yay. But boy, you spent oh, however many yeah. years or months being miserable. That's not the life. That's not the way to live. It's not the way to lead. It's not the way to, to do anything. It's not the way to create a more powerful vision goal. No, it's not the way. I mean, it, it's the journey. And I think that's a lot of entrepreneurs like you have been. I think that really speaks to them. Do you think so? It speaks to them more than anybody. You know, you get stuck on trying to get to that multi-million dollar or scaling up, but you don't enjoy the journey. Absolutely. You know, most entrepreneurs leave, if, if they started in, in regular business, corporate or not, if they started in business and became an entrepreneur, so let's start with those folks, they did that because they didn't like the model they were in, right? Exactly. They had an idea for something that they wanted to improve or fix or do better, and that's great. And now they want to do it on their own terms. They want to be their own boss. They want to have a better work experience, but they get so stuck sometimes in the outcome. And I've, like you said, I've got to reach this goal of product or goal, you know, whatever revenue. And it, it ruins the experience. That's why a lot of entrepreneurs fail, quite frankly, is because the experience is so difficult because it's not the same. And, you know, they also try to bring in the same business model into their entrepreneurial world. You're not a corporate entity yet. You're just starting out. You're going to work seven days a week, not five. Yeah. And you're not going to have an eight to five job. You're going to work when you can. And so it's a completely different experience. But if you start asking the questions of how do I want to experience my life as an entrepreneur? How do I want to make my journey different from when I was working at XYZ you know, company? You start asking those questions. And what would it feel like if my team did it this way instead of that way? It just it makes the whole experience of being an entrepreneur more fun and the success. You know, if you do it right, and of course, there's a lot of components to being successful yeah. as an entrepreneur. Yeah, but if you yeah. do it right and you succeed, how much better of a success is it when you've enjoyed the journey versus if it's a slog the entire way and then oh great we hit our mark, you yeah. know? And so, by the way, I'm gonna throw in my two cents here because your TED talk made me think about this as well. Uh, to enjoy that journey. That's key. And you have to reward yourself. Okay. This is not my, this is your show, but I'm going to say, do you have to reward yourself along the way? Yep. You have to say, okay, I achieved this. I'm going to take the afternoon off and go to baseball game. But you know what most entrepreneurs do? I achieved this. Great. Let me do the next thing. That's right. And That's right. How does that make you feel? When you just see now, if you ask that question in the mm -hmm. moment, maybe it will change what you think about and what you do. Because if you said, I achieved this and I've got two choices now, I can reward myself by going to the baseball game yeah. or I can work on the next thing on my to-do list. How will each of those make me feel? In everything that you do, if you start thinking about it that way, it really changes the way that you approach whatever it is you're doing. 
And that doesn't mean that every single time you go to the baseball game, but it does mean that sometimes you need to do that because it's going to make you feel better and give you that mm -hmm. rejuvenation that you're going to need. Absolutely. And get that rest that you need. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Get that rest. You know, I want to stay with this TED Talk just for a minute, but I want to be aware of the time too. But during your TED Talk, there's a lot of information that you have that I've seen that I have followed up on just to, trying to get ready for our talk. How would you get it into that framework of time that's allowed it? Oof, boy, I'll tell you, you know, my wife and I have curating TEDx's now for 11 years. She came up with a training program to help our authors or our speakers do just that. And boy, I wish I'd have had that when I was yes, doing that yes, first yes, one yes. Um, because it's hard. And, you know, you 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 start with this massive idea and you you just have to work through it. And it was a little bit how I came up with motivations in that. I had so much more information than I could give. It's why I ended up writing the book, quite frankly. The book, I wanted to title this book Motivations, and my publisher talked me out of it, which is a whole different story. Yes. But Ask is really everything I wanted to put in the talk, in the book, because I couldn't. But what I did was the same approach that I used when I came up with Motivations of trying to nail it down to those four or five key components. I took all the information I have and all the different things I could talk about and said, okay, mm -hmm. from my audience's perspective, and I don't mean just the audience in the room, I mean the global audience that watches TED Talks, what, what am I trying to, to get across to them? What points do I, you know, must I make for them to understand this concept? And what points would be great if I could make them, but it's not necessary for them to get the concept and understand how it works? Because a TED Talk isn't meant to be everything about your idea. In fact, if you talk to, or if you do any research on TED at all or TEDx, you will see that the idea behind TED and their ideas worth sharing is to start a conversation. So if you think about your TED talk as how do I start a conversation around my topic of whatever it is I wanna share, then that should inform what you talk about and, and the information you do in part. It's not about, I need to make you, Glenn, the expert on motivations. It's how do I get Glenn educated enough about what motivations is and how it works that he wants to continue the conversation, learn more, practice it, or, you know, whatever. That's right. the goal right. of the TED Talk. And so once you have that sort of mindset, it helps narrow it down. See, and that's powerful uh, of what understanding in two ways. If you're out there thinking about doing a TED Talk or TEDx, it's an ideal worth sharing. It's not the game plan worth sharing. It's not all that work. But then also, this is why they're so popular. C-level folks love these because in 18 minutes, they got the ideal. Right. And sometimes less. Yeah. Sometimes less. Yeah. Sometimes it could be as little as eight, 14, eight. doesn't yep. really matter. But it's go as they got the ideal. Yeah. And it's, if you're, go ahead. No, no. It, you're right. It's, it's very concise. And it gives you the nucleus of what's going on. And here's the thing I, I would always sort of remember when we talk about business leaders and watching TED Talks. Is like anything else that you do in terms of research or development, whether it's a talk or a conference that you go to, whatever you're going to learn, you're going to have to adapt into your organization anyway. It's never going to fit like a you know perfect puzzle because yeah. your yeah. organization's different and yeah. you as a leader are different. So when you listen to someone giving a talk, whether it's a keynote or a TED talk or something else, you're looking for that nucleus that you can then take and mold in the way that you need to for your life, your business, or whatever. And Ted does a good job of that because they say, we're just going to force you to come out with the basic, most needed information and none of the fluff. See, that's good. That's good. Now, I want to just tease everybody and put a little fire behind you. Uh-oh. This training program, I've had a couple people say, well, let me help you train people. So that's not what I do. Okay, I want to 
curate good TED Talks and have people share in-depth look at it. But your wife has this program set up where she is able to help those folks who want to be speakers. So we'll get her on sometime real soon. And it won't be in this format, but it'll be in this, here is what you need to do. Contact us so we can get it done. So put that in the back of your mind and may ask you to come up with that today. <laughs> a little bit of contact us so you can get that done. I, um, to keep on this flow here, the pit of despair. Ah, yeah, this is one of my favorite parts. This is one of my favorite parts of motivation. So I, I alluded to it earlier when I talked yeah. about when life happens uh, in, a, in a major way and you can't just turn off the, you know, the negative thought and replace it with a positive one, right? The same is true of motivations, right? Asking intentional questions or motivating questions works 100% of the time. However, when there is a major, and I mean a major life shift. So again, you get laid off from your job. That's a major life event. Um, your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend leaves you. That's hard. That's a major heartache event. Um, you know, again, we talk about if, if you lose a loved one, these are major events. Now, am I saying that if that happens to you, all you need to do is reframe the questions that you're asking? Absolutely not. And that's because when something big like that happens, you fall into, for those of us that like the Princess Bride movie, you fall into the pit of despair. Okay. It's a reference to the movie, but yes. in this pit of despair, where something major has happened to you and it's mm. a negative impact, you need time to process that, right? And everyone is different. For some people, it's a few hours. For some people, it's a few weeks and everywhere in between. But you need time to, to deal with the grief if you've loved someone or the grief if you've been left by, you know, a heartache. Um, certainly to the, the stress and the anxiety that comes along with losing a job or, you know, having a major shift where, Maybe your spouse is taking you across the country because they got a better job and now you're uprooting everything you've ever done. And all of that is stressful. You need time to process that. And everybody should process that grief and that stress and that anxiety in their own way. But at some point, you, you reach this point where you're in this pit, right? You're down in this long tunnel, big walls, you can't climb out. And you're in this pit of despair and you're ready. You're ready to come back. But now you're you're depressed or you're sad or you're so anxious that you, you almost feel like you're immobilized, right? What do you do? What do you do when you're in the pit of despair and you're ready? You've, you've, you've processed your grief. You've done the things that you need to do, but you can't feel your way out of these walls and you can't figure out how to get out. And that is what I call the power of if. So back to our questions. Right now, Let's say, um, let's use the example of you've lost your job and you're, you're, you're looking for work and you're not sure what you're going to do and you, you don't quite know how to do it. You've, you've, you've certainly processed the grief of losing the job, but you're still sad and hurt and all the things, all the you know, emotions that come with that negativism. And now you're like, God, I just don't know what to do. And I, I really don't know how to look for a different job. And I, don't, I want to, but what do I do? Right yes. now, if I tell you, if I tell you in that state, in that emotional, heavy, really down state, if I say, "Hey, look, Glenn, all you got to do is ask different questions," you're either going to slap me yeah. <laughs> or hang up the phone. Yeah, yeah. So, how do you change when you don't want to change? And that's what I call the power of if, because your brain that's doing the question and answer is a computer, and if you ask it a question, it's going to give you an answer. It may not be the answer you want, but it'll give you an answer, right? So instead of saying, how do I look for a new job? You change the question and you start with if. If I wanted to look for a new job, what, what could I do? 
right? It takes the pressure off the negative, heavy person who's sitting down here going, oh, I don't feel good, and says, if? So you mean I don't really have to do anything, right? It's just if. It's like a hypothetical. Okay, so if I wanted to look for a new job, I guess I could go online and look at some, you know, some, some job search yeah. sites or whatever. If you wanted to feel good about looking for a new job, or how about this one? If you wanted to ask someone to help you, who would that person be? Well, I mean, I don't know if I want to call Jimmy, but you know, Jimmy could probably help me, I guess. Mm -hmm. if I can call, right? Now, the first time you ask the if question, that's all that happens is you sort of have this if. But then you keep asking the next day, like, all right, if, if I really wanted to be serious about changing careers, what might I be interested in? At this point, I don't even have to do anything, right? I don't have to go look for a new career. I'm just saying if I was looking for something new, what would I be interested in? Write that stuff down. And then as we talked about, once you get that moving along, then you ask the question, and how would that make me feel? See, and boom, you are out of the pit of despair. I didn't need to ask you to give us an inspirational question. You just did. That's why I went in and scroll that across because you're giving it to us. So what you're saying, if I can, and coach me, what would happen if? So if I was, um, if I was going to make $300,000 a day, if I was going to do that, what would I do? Okay. Right. And based upon what I, what I would do would be then for me to decide, well, how would that make me feel? Right. And you could start even simpler and say, okay, if my goal is to make $300,000 a day, who do I know that could mentor me to do that? And how would it make me feel to have a mentor to help me get there? Because now it's not just on Glenn or just on Michael, right? It's not just up to me. I've got a mentor who's going to help me do it. Yeah. 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 See, and that's a great place to be in. Great place to be in. So the pit of despair really is handled with the if question. Yeah, it's the power of if because it, it it gives you an out. It makes you so that while you're not feeling good, you realize I'm not trying to trick you brain. I'm not trying to say, hey, change the question. I'm just saying, if you're ready yeah. and when you're ready, what what kind of things will you do? And the more you start asking that question every day, other uh, uh, as opposed to the question of, how am I gonna find a new job? Why, mm. how, no one's gonna, why would anybody hire me at you know 42 years old or 26 years old or whatever age they are, right? Those mm -hmm. questions don't help you. But if if you wanted to look for a new job at whatever age, what kind of things would be fun? Like if if losing this job was maybe something to help me go in a completely different direction, how would that feel? You know, like those right, kind of questions right. will get you out of the pit of despair much quicker than the, the traditional thoughts and answers that you don't pay attention to. It's the questions that you're making the choice to make the difference with. It's the intentional, the it's the motivating questions. It's, motivations. It's, it's the whole beans. It's the whole beans right there. Yeah, and that is it right there. Although I want to uh, take apart one other thing. Yeah. The 28-day challenge. Ah, excellent. I'm so glad you asked this question. Okay. So I talked about the morning and evening. In fact, I, I actually created some card decks way back when, when I did the TED Talk called Quips. Um, oh. Questions, questions, well, here we go. Questions with intent and purpose. Okay. So there's an evening and a morning deck. And each one has questions on it. There's 50, you know, two cards. So for example, these are a couple of cards I pulled at random from the morning deck. So this one says, imagine waking up and asking this question. What can I do today to create a life I don't need a vacation from? It's a reference to Tim Ferriss or uh, to Seth Godin. But imagine starting your day thinking about that while you're brushing your teeth. What can I do today to create a life I don't need a vacation from? Or this other one, what can I do today to advance in the direction of my long-term dream? Right, because you may have short-term goals, long-term dream. You ask those two questions first thing in the morning, and these are very generic. 
And so the, the idea behind Quips is you've got all these cards. And then the, at night, I'm just giving you some examples here. Um, mm -hmm. What happened to me today that improved my life? So instead of going through the litany of things that, were, that happened to me or that I forgot to do, I go to sleep thinking about what happened to me today that improved my life. Or I ask, when were three times in my life that I felt unstoppable? Think about going to bed thinking about uh -huh. that, right? So the power of these, these questions, and, and the, the mm. idea behind Clips is for that 28-day challenge, but you don't need the card decks to do that. This is just a way to help you get started. You can create your own questions. But here's what I, here's what I did at the end of my TED Talk. It's what I do at the end of my book, is I challenged people, the audience, the, the viewing audience, as it were, to take me up on the 28-day challenge. And think about it this way. You and I are, are of the age where we remember when we were young um, that you know our friends, whenever they wanted to push us out of our comfort zone, they would dare us to do something, right? Yeah. I dare you to go ask Sally to yeah. dance because you've got a crush on Sally, right? Double and then you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm, I'm not asking yeah. Sally. Then, then they would pull the, I double dog dare you. I have yeah. no idea what double dog dare you, but if somebody did that, you went and asked Sally you to dance, yeah. right? You did it, yes, yes, absolutely. So. The thing about motivations is it forces us to think about our day and, and our thoughts and our process. And that's not easy. It's simple. I mean, the concept is very simple, but I, I promise you it's not, it's not easy. It's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And so most people, when faced with the easy road and the hard road, take the easy road, right? And it's out of their comfort zone to think about themselves and focus on their own stuff and much less change it. So I'm asking people to really step out of their comfort zone. And so what the 28-day challenge is, is to just do one or two questions every morning and one or two questions every night for 28 straight days. That's it. N don't worry about the rest of the day during the day. If you happen to think about a question while something bad is happening, great, but don't pressure yourself. Just AM and PM questions, one or two, and you can change them up after, you know, you do it for a, a couple, maybe you do it for a week with two questions, you change it up to a different set of questions either because you pulled them out of the deck or you wrote your own that were very specific to your goals, whatever whatever works. But you do it for 28 straight days. And I promise you, mm -hmm. at the end of 28 straight days, your life will have changed because subconsciously you will be asking different questions throughout the day without even thinking about it. Go back That's then. the 28-day challenge. Here's the way I end it, though. When I give the 28-day challenge, and I did this in my talk, I do it in the book, mm -hmm. is I say, look, just try it. Don't believe me. Just try it for yourself for 28 days. Worst that's going to happen is you'll have start living a happier, you know, healthier, happier life. That's the worst that's going to happen. Right, right. But I promise you, if you do this, it'll change your life. So, I double dog dare you to do it. Well, I want to double dog dare those who listen to do go back and give us that very first morning question you gave us about the vacation. I'm going to double dog dare the audience on something. All right. Here's the question: What can I do today? To create a life I don't need a vacation from. I double dog dare you to ask that question and decide what that answer is going to be and then decide how you're going to feel if you do that. There you go. You can do that right now. I mean, when you asked the question, my mind went to, you know, what I don't need a vacation from is this. I don't need a vacation from this ability to talk to people all the time. Right. Love it. I haven't worked a day in my life in the last 10 years since I've been doing this on my own. You are living the dream, my friend. Yeah. And love it. So I double dog dare those who listen to this to sit back and say, wait a minute, what can I do today to create the type of, if you want to call it work, career that I don't need a vacation from? Yeah. It's what, what kind of life do you want to live the way you don't have to take a vacation. Vacations are just part of what you do. Yeah, it's, yeah. If, if I'm going to take a vacation and go someplace I can write my book, right? <laughs> or do the next That's thing. exactly right. Do that retreat you talked about. Um, I, I want to 
gosh, you know, we're going to go over time here and I think it's going to be okay. But how did this TED Talk affect your current work, your TEDx Talk? How did that affect your current work right now? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, in, in many different ways, the, the most of which, I mean, to be honest, those first couple of years of curating TEDx Talks were hard. We, we were, you know, we didn't have a whole, Ted, TEDx was just getting started. It was, you know, the, the first TED Talks that were put on the internet was in 2006. There were six of them that were put on the, after, you know, from 15, 20 years of, of people doing these events, they finally put them out there. And then TEDx came along in 2009, 2010. But, you know, there wasn't a whole community like there is now. And there, there wasn't a whole lot of help. And so those first couple of years, every time we did an event, I told my wife, I can't do another one of these. I'm losing more and more hair. Every, I mean, look at my yeah. left now, right, yeah. after 11 years. But I'll tell you, Glenn, at, at the end of the day, when we got through with the event and I was, you know, I, it, it takes us about seven to nine months to do an event start to finish with the, all the editing and everything else. Yeah. But you hear all these amazing people with their ideas. It's so motivating, right? And uh, you talk about doing this and not working a day in your life. Curating a TED Talk is a massive amount of work and, and effort, but it's not work to me. I love doing what I do. And so... Um, that changed the course of my life in the sense that I started doing that while I had, I mean, I was at that point, I was a CEO of a company. Um, I mean, I was doing a lot of other stuff, but I was doing this on the side. And then I, I morphed gradually into trying to do more and more of this. So it changed the direction of my life. It also, you know, just focused on, I mean, people came up to me, not just in the audience, but online after my talk, I had people from Australia who had watched the talk. There's a woman in Oregon who is a, still a good friend who I'd never met before. She messaged me after the talk and said, this is amazing. Um, I want to get to know you more. And so, you know, we're, she's a family friend of ours now. And you make these connections with people. And it just instilled in me um, the, the belief that helping people, whatever their thing. So if I'm curating a TED talk, I'm helping put people on stage to spread their idea. If I'm working with someone who wants to publish a book, I'm helping them get their book published. If I'm working with leaders and doing consulting, I'm all of these things is to help people live their best lives. And that's what I want to do. And so it really drew me into understanding that the corporate life, and that's why I, I sort of say I'm a, a recovering corporate CEO, because I don't do that right. anymore. Right, um, right. It was great, and it would, it helped me get to where I was, but I was done with that. I, I was ready to move on to something else. You know, speaking of something else, how, why did you create a publishing company? First hand, I know this is a tough issue, but well, why did you create one? It's, it's very personal. So my wife and I, as you mentioned, we've both been published a few times, and we've contributed to other books. And unfortunately, uh, again, not knowing anything about the publishing industry back in 2013 when I started writing this book, um, I wrote the book. I found a publisher who was very gracious to publish my book. Um, he also published my, my wife's book. But then he, he was an entrepreneur and he sold the publishing company to another people in 2019. And um, they contacted us and said, hey, we're the new owners of the company. We want to talk to you. So we each had our own personal call with them about you know, what book are you currently working on? And great. When you're done, let us know. Five months later, we both got emails saying we're putting all of your books out of print unless you give us $2,500 per copy to get your licenses back. And they are what's known in the indie publishing world, or at least what I call them, uh, as predatory publishers. And they were, they were doing this across the 600 plus publishers that were in the catalog of the previous owner's uh, company. Right. And they were basically yeah. just saying, if those, yeah, if those books aren't selling off the shelf like hotcakes, we're going to put them out of print. And the only way, because most people don't realize when they get an indie publisher, you know, Harper and Collins and the big, the big five publishers are different, but it's hard to get into those uh, as, as a first-time author. But the rest of the publishing world, a vast majority of them have clauses in their contracts that are geared towards the copyright. 
meaning the copyright's in your name. So Glenn writes his book, he gets the copyright, you know this, but mm -hmm. the publisher owns the right to publish for the life of the copyright and the copyright lasts for your lifetime plus 70 years, seven zero. Yeah. So we got scammed by this these people and uh, unfortunately our contract, because it was an early contract with the other company, um, didn't have an out uh, in it. It was not a very well-written contract. We just didn't know. We were too, too, too trusting, quite frankly. But I started meeting many, many other people. Oh, so that happened. Mm -hmm. That happened to us personally. At the same time that my wife and I had this epiphany of all of these people for 11 years, and I don't even know how many events because we do more than one event a year, um, we've been putting these people on our stage who have a great idea, but many of them also have amazing stories. Or another way to put it, they have a story to tell, a book yeah. inside of them, but they don't know how to write. They don't know what to do if they finish writing. They, they, you know, self-publishing has come a long way and it's great, but you're you're limited for very little editing. It's all AI based. It's not going to really do a, a you know quality job. So we had all these people in our network that needed books and needed help doing it, but there was no one that would either help them without charging them, because most of these places will say, you've got to pay to play to get published. And we wanted to create a model that could help them. So that's why we decided to create this publishing model as a nonprofit model. So it's by authors, for authors, and in the very truest sense of the word. That's powerful because I just yesterday had a phone call from a person who's writing a, uh, a nonfiction books, and we don't do those. We do textbooks and workbooks, things like that. So I needed a resource to send her to. Okay, so now we have one. I mean, that came up go. the day before. Um, yep. I want to make sure that people can get a hold of you. Is this it? Yeah, that's, the, that's, the, that's the that's that's the best place. I mean, the journeyinstitute.org is kind of our umbrella nonprofit. Mm -hmm. but, and again, my wife's story, you'll talk to her about that, and she can tell you how we created that. But um, from that, we, we curate TEDx events, and then we have this press. The Journey Institute Press is the publishing arm. And all the information about us is on there. You can find inf contact information information about the books, all that stuff is there. Okay, and for those of you who are consuming this on the podcast, you don't get the video to see it, but it's gonna be in the podcast description so you can see where to go to to do it. If you have even thought, by the way, of doing a TEDx, go here. If you've even thought about, you know, um, publishing a book, go here, okay? You know, unless you're writing a workbook, then you know we'll compete. If you're working, <laughs> no, I am happy. Yeah. I am happy to send the workbooks to you. I'm happy to and do so, that because I, I want to help write. You know, authors who are writing, you know, nonfiction and even maybe some fiction, but mostly nonfiction related stuff. I had a uh, brilliant guest, um, and she pointed this out, and I've been sharing it ever since then. Collaboration is a strength of today. If you want to be great, collaborate. So the way the way my wife and I talk about it is mm -hmm. there's no such thing as competition, only opportunities for collaboration. Yes, there you go. That, and that, that is our mantra. That is a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. You know what? Let me ask you. Let me ask the whole audience. How does that make you feel? <laughs> the collaboration right? part. Let's if, let's look for those opportunities to work together. Yes. Kind of into the wrap up here. I want to ask you what questions should I I have asked you that I didn't. Boy, for a guy with questions, that's a loaded one because I could come up with 50 or 60. Right. Um, I'll tell you, I'll do this, though. I'll tell you that um, I'm often asked a question, which is, what is the best question to ask ourselves? And it's a hard one to ask answer because it depends is really the answer because everybody's different. Everybody's in a different stage of life. And so that one to come up with a question that everyone should ask themselves is a little bit nebulous for me. But there's a notion that I want to implant, if I will, uh, or impart with you is, which is 
if, if there's one more secret to motivations beyond asking intentional questions and then asking how you how they make you feel, it's this notion of how do whatever it is that I'm asking a question about and however it is that it makes me feel, how do I then do it in a way that serves other people? How do I give back? Because no matter what you do, as a leader, as an employee, as a stay-at-home parent, as whatever your role is in your life, if you can think about the things that you do in a, such a way that it helps other people, and again, this is what I got out of doing my own TED Talk and the path it led me down, your life is so much more infinitely rewarding than just doing the thing that you do. So how it makes you feel is awesome. How can I make you feel better about it? And it goes back to what we were just talking about with you know no competition, just opportunity for collaboration because that's a way that we get to help each other to help more people. You help some people by doing the work that you do here plus the publication work that you do. So do I. If we work together, we are exponentially helping other people. We're not competing against each other. We're doing more, which isn't, isn't that the purpose? Isn't that the, the whole idea? That's the whole idea. I, we go back to Napoleon Hill, you know, or Zig Ziglar, all those, these people told us the more people you help, the wealthier you're going to be. Start That's by right. helping people. Start by That's helping exactly people. Right. I mean, for those of you who are looking at the podcast, let me throw up the uh, URL once again. So you can go to that and get going. Let's collaborate together on these different things. Okay. Absolutely. Um, Again, I really want to thank you for your time. We went, we have more that we can share and talk about. Okay. Because <laughs> the, the TEDx journey was one thing, but now we, you have a whole new journey that's going on, and we should be able to talk about that. So I would be very happy if you would consider coming back. I would be honored. It would be my honor. Um, my last word is thank you. Your last words. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Okay, my pleasure.